are UK equities good value? How to use asset allocation to boost returns? And should you be adding more alternative assets to your portfolio? Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Emma Ejman, Personal Finance Writer at the Investors Chronicle. And joining me today are Taha Lockhandweller, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and Adrian Lowcock, Investment Director at Architas. UK investors have been shunning the UK ever since the vote to leave a European Union. More than £1.8 billion has flowed out of funds in the Investment Association UK all-company sector in 2017, and this year outflows have continued. International investors are also wary. A recent Bank of America Merrill Lynch survey of global portfolio managers ranked UK equities as the least attractive asset class in the world. Taha, why are investors so negative on the UK? Hi, Emma. Um, So it seems to be related around the political situation in the UK at the moment. Obviously, we have ongoing trade negotiations with the European Union, and no one is really sure about how this is going to turn out. So what that meant is that the stocks that face the UK consumer and the UK domestic economy seem to be um, being shunned somewhat by both domestic investors and international investors. And what this means, there seems to be a slight depression on their valuation. And this is because people aren't really sure how the UK economy is going to be after, the, after we leave the European Union or what spending power might be like. And, you know, there could be a spike in inflation and just, just general uncertainty overall. And which stocks are the most unloved then? So these, these seem to be the ones kind of facing the UK consumer and ones that are very reliant on the UK domestic economy. Um, so things like house builders, they, they seem quite depressed at the moment and retail stocks as well. But obviously there are other sector issues in, in the retail sector. And so do you think that because these areas are cheaper, could they actually be a sort of value opportunity? So the evidence says yes. Um, Obviously, there are are wider issues to consider. So if you look at company fundamentals, they seem quite strong. And we really don't know uh, what the impact of the the trade agreement is going to be. So, you know, this this could be all unnecessary in terms of how much people are viewing the UK economy negatively. They do seem to be priced for very bad news. I think one fund manager said recently they were they were priced as if they've already had their Brexit, which is an interesting way of looking at it. And also, if you look at the M&A activity, there's a lot of international companies coming in to buy UK companies. And what that would imply is that the company fundamentals are sound, but they're at cheap value. Okay, so that sounds like a potential opportunity then. But what are the risks when you're doing value investing? Okay, so the, the, the main one is, 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 of course, the value trap. And what this means is that if a, a company is priced below its fundamentals um, or just priced kind of or just priced badly compared to the kind of the rest of the sector or the rest of the, the UK kind of stock market, it might be just because it's a bad company. So if you look at the retail sector, for example, yeah, the retail sector looks cheap. But if you look at the companies that are struggling, some of them just have bad business models. And therefore, if you, you start buying companies based on their valuation and aren't really taking into account what the company is like, then you could just be you know, a one-way road to losing money. Sure. And there are those risks there. But if you're sort of comfortable with taking that risk, what kind of funds can you use to get exposure to managers who are trying to find value in the UK? So the, the UK or company sector is quite good. It has a, a, a broad range of UK growth strategies and UK value strategies. And there are some very, very good UK value managers out there. A personal favourite of mine is... Um, is Henry Dixon and Jack Barrett at ManGLG. So they actually have two funds. They have the ManGLG Undervalued Assets Fund and the ManGLG UK Income Fund. And obviously the UK Income Fund is an income strategy, but with a very, very strong value tilt. And the Undervalued Assets Fund is just a pure value equity strategy. They they both run on similar fundamentals, but their top 10 holdings are slightly different. So obviously um, they they have they have different leanings. The Undervalued Assets is more exposed to, to kind of basic materials and mining and the UK Income Fund is, is more exposed to financials and that's a dividend. And that's because of the dividends available from, from the different sectors. 
But what the managers do is they um, they don't use traditional valuation metrics and they look at balance sheet strength and that's the way they decide whether a company's fundamental is worth <clears throat> and that's the way they decide whether a company's share price is worth less than what it is at the moment. Adrian, what do you think about this discussion? Do you think that the UK market offers good value right now? So value is quite an interesting term. If you look at it on sort of pure valuations of the market, then the UK does look cheaper than it did a year ago. Uh, and a year ago, it was about in, t- in line with its long-term average valuations. And if you compare it to other markets, and this is important because this is what investors are do- uh, you know, they're doing, is they're looking at alternative options. And the US looks a bit more expensive, and Europe looks a bit more expensive. But Japan and emerging markets look a bit cheaper than the UK. So on, on that level, the UK looks reasonably attractive uh, sort of valuation. But you've still got to factor in the risks. You've got Brexit overhanging the markets and, and the political risk that that entails as well. So I think the UK does look sort of good value, but there are risks that are quite unique to the UK at the moment. Taha was mentioning that um, there are certain sectors in the UK that are looking cheaper. Do you think that these have more potential value then? Uh, yeah, this is, this is exactly it. It's not just the market as a whole. It's sectors that are within the market that actually matter. So it's what's cheap relative to the rest of the market. And there are sectors uh, such as the house builders and the retailers, and the retailers is going through a bit of a, a cycle at the moment. And, and, and that's a really interesting area because it's, it's about stock selection there very much so. And then you've got other areas where there's been sort of value opportunities, such as the, sort of the banks and the mining stocks, uh, particularly sort of last year, uh, where, where they were sort of discounted as there was concerns over, over growth, uh, not just in the UK, but also globally. Stock selection is, is key as well, um, and a focus on sort of uh, the domestic economy. So things that are perhaps more domestically focused are, are a bit more sensitive to the, what's going on in the UK. So you've got to really shop around and have a look at what's cheap. And at the same time, you know, if something does get cheap enough, then there, will, there, is, there, is, there has been and there will be more M&A activity and, and companies won't wait for markets to revalue stocks. They will see an opportunity and buy it. And um, you were sort of mentioning the risks. So, I mean, obviously, we all know the Brexit risk. What other, other risks do you think are facing the UK? So Brexit is, is, is quite clearly the main one. But I think attached to that is the political risk. Um, we have a, a Theresa May's government, you know, hasn't looked particularly strong since the election. There seems to be a, a sort of time when, uh, you know, it could, could collapse at any point, which could lead to another election. And the, the concern the city has and, and financial institutions have it is that, you know, if you had a, a, a collapse of that government and you had a Corbyn government come in, then that that looks sort of a, a very worst case scenario for the UK, particularly while they're going on the, uh, sort of negotiations over Brexit. So that's a very big risk, and, and it's an unknown one at the moment. Um, I think also there are perhaps other global factors, and for me, one of the things to be sort of aware of in the background is is what's going on in the US. They've been tightening quantitative easing, so they've been withdrawing the money stimulus that they put into the market, and that accelerates later this year. That could have a, 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 a and if that that policy is wrong, it can have a big impact on the U.S. economy, which will knock on and roll through to the U.K. So some of the risks are actually outside our control, and I think it's important to sort of factor that in. That wouldn't just be a U.K. Uh, dependent thing, though. It would affect the rest of the world if the U.S. sort of tipped into recession, perhaps you know, possibly as early as next year. But it, it, it does matter to sort of look beyond that because if the U.K. sort of hit, faces a recession sooner rather than later, then that, that sort of weighs on uh, the, the other risks that, that are facing the UK at the moment as well. So given all these risks and the potential opportunities, you know, how much is a sensible amount for UK investors to have in the UK? Because, you know, as I was saying earlier, generally investors have been shunning the UK. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think this 
to some extent is relative to what they were perhaps doing prior to that as well. If you're a UK investor and you live in the UK, then your primary objective is effectively to try and beat and outperform interest rates and inflation in the country you live in. Because for most people, they're investing for their longer term to retire on. So they want to get a better return than, than the cost of living, effectively. Um, so you tend to have a, a sort of natural bias to your home country. There are less risks investing in your home country. You have less con- uh, currency risk in the UK. You have uh, strong regulation, a strong rule of law. So the UK market is seen as quite a strong uh, regulatory and, 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 and corporate environment. So as such, I think you, know, you could hold between about 30-40% of your portfolio in UK equities. That would vary depending on how much time you have until you sort of meet your goals and, and, and your attitude to risk. And the other thing that Taha was sort of touching on um, when we're talking about the opportunity in, or potential opportunity in the UK is this value style investing. And that has underperformed growth style investing, hasn't it, in the past decade? But do you think that value could be coming back? So, yes. I mean, over the longer term, uh, value sort of stretched out quite a long way from, from growth. And they're, they're, uh, particularly sort of last year and, and perhaps in 2016, there were sort of comments about that, you know, this has got to the biggest discount it has. There has been some signs that that's sort of changed over the last 18 months, and certainly in the large cap space, value has performed much more strongly than, than growth in the large cap space. In smaller companies, you tend to get growth doing a bit better. By its very nature, you have more growth companies in the smaller cap space, and that's sort of what you're looking for in there. Um, it will come back, you know, and, and these things do tend to sort of revert to mean and and. and uh, and it will happen, but it's very hard to see exactly how it how it will all pan out because the the, the sort of macro political environment matters, the economic environment matters, and at the moment globally investors are still quite tied into this growth philosophy, particularly around technology uh, stocks and a bit more about the sort of ESG ethical environmental stuff that's been going on. But you know, eventually the value those stocks do, you know they will look cheap, um, and particularly areas like financials where interest rate rises benefit financials. They're much much more sick. And mining stocks, where uh, you know strong economic environment actually supports uh, commodity prices, and if the U.S. dollar continues to strengthen, then they will they will continue to recover as well. Value areas that uh, you know it changes as well over time as as as, as, as sentiment to different sectors moves. So the the retailers are perhaps not you know maybe a bit early for them at the moment, but they 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 will present a value opportunity, and the survivors. Of, of the current sort of fallout will, will you know, gain market share and be more competitive. And so are you planning to kind of increase your um, allocation to value-style investing? Um, I think at the moment it's a case of sort of perhaps buying and holding. I think it's having a combination for me. So I, I, I sort of like having a balance between value and growth. I think there's probably still a, a bias towards more internationally focused companies because we still don't know the, the end game with Brexit negotiations. So the risks in the UK still weigh on it. But at the same time, you know the 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 opportunities that will be thrown up by this 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 sort of this, these risks and these, this aversion to the UK will come through in takeovers uh, and acquisitions. So you should have you know continue to have some exposure and basically wait for the wait for the market to sort of catch up if you like. So I like a, a balance of um, a mixture of both. And um, which funds do you like in this space, Adrian? So um, if you're looking at growth, I, I quite like the Marlborough Microcap Growth, growth Fund. Uh, 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 Giles Hargreaves, an exceptional long-term manager, uh, very much sort of 
detailed company analysis, looking at very small companies. But he also combines that with, uh, with, with what I think is quite rare, which is a very good and very strict portfolio construction discipline. Um, so he holds quite a diversified portfolio to reduce risk and then and builds up his exposure to different investments very slowly that then hit key targets. Um, he's got a long, excellent long-term track record as well. On the value side, I like the uh, Schroeder UK uh, Schroeder Recovery Fund. It's a UK fund. It's a what you probably describe as deep value. So they're looking for those really unloved stocks uh, that have been massively out of favour. So they've held banks for some time. Uh, they've held miners for some time, and they were buying those when they were very much out of out of favour. Because it is a very deep value fund, it will have periods of underperformance, uh, particularly as value has been unloved. It's, it had struggled for a few years on under that but it's also had strong periods of outperformance and, and would really benefit from a swing to value okay thank you very much adrian some great points now when choosing investments you might focus on the company's fundamentals if you're choosing a stock or the manager's investment style and track record if you're choosing a fund but how much attention do you pay to your overall portfolio's asset allocation taha you've been looking at this what is asset allocation first of all and why is it important so asset allocation basically refers to the framework that an investor would look at their entire portfolio. So you'd be talking about the funds you hold, any ETFs, the cash holdings and pensions, and you would look across all of this and decide how much do I want here, how much do I want there. And this could be dependent on geography. So you could say you want 20% to the US and 40% to the UK, or it could even be kind of less than that and be like, oh, I want 10% in mining and 20% in banks. So it's just So it just provides a kind of way of managing your exposure and assuring at the end of the day that you have a diversified portfolio so you're not too concentrated to one area. And what are some of the different ways that you can actually approach asset allocation? There, there are a couple of ways and I was, I was speaking to some people last week and they talked about two ways which is called top down and uh, bottom up. This is the same way you might look at uh, picking stocks as well so it's the, it's the same concept in that top down means that you look at the macro environment and then you decide that the UK is looking good or the US is looking good or Europe is looking good and you you weight your portfolio to that area based on the macroeconomic outlook so you expect the stocks to do better or or bonds if you know you can look at it from both sides and the other way is bottom up and that is just deciding that you have you're picking investments based on their fundamental value so this again it could be stocks or it could be a fund and you would go no this is a good fund and this is a good stock I'm going to use this and then you build that together and therefore then you create an asset allocation from as in by picking investments, so that's why it's called bottom-up, because you, you go the other way. But once you've actually made a decision about how you're going to construct your portfolio, either using that top-down or bottom-up way, um, is it better to sort of sit back and allow the process to work, or should you tinker with it as things change? This is the uh, this is the debate, basically. So there are the, these are two very different ways of running portfolios, is that you, you actively look at your portfolio and your asset allocation over time, and you go... Do you know what I'm? You know we're coming into the second quarter. I think that the U.S. is looking expensive, and I think Europe is looking cheap. So I'm going to start trimming the U.S. and start adding to Europe. At the same time, you could just decide that you have a 15% allocation to the U.S. and a 10% allocation to Europe, and that's how you want to keep this. And you just you make changes at the margins so you make sure that this stays intact. There's academic studies that show which way is better, but they you know they all end up proving and disproving each other. So this is a debate. It just it basically comes down to who you are as a person and what you want to achieve. So there are advantages to the the active way of doing it because it means that you might eke out some extra returns by being in the right place at the right time. But you have to factor in trading costs, the time, and obviously the cost of being wrong because no one's ever going to be right all the time. Right. Um, and Adrian, what do you think about this? Is asset allocation an important driver of investment returns, do you think? 
Uh, it is, um, and, it, it, and it's an important way of managing risk as well. Um, so effectively, the way I would look at asset allocation is it's a way of getting a similar or better return, but actually for a lower level of risk because it gives you that diversification. So how do you go about approaching asset allocation? How do you do it? So quite a lot, of, I think, for asset allocation, we tend to look more at the macro environment, uh, look at the economic outlook for a, for a market, look at valuations and that sort of drive and influence the decision to get exposure to, to, say, the U.S. market or perhaps to a different asset class like bonds or something. So I think macro really, really matters. And then that can also influence the type of funds you might buy. So we were talking about uh, value strategies earlier. Your, your sort of view on the market and where the valuation opportunities are or what's driving that market could drive how you pick funds. And then you let the fund managers of those underlying funds uh, take the bottom-up approach and pick the stocks to fill those those buckets. So that, that's sort of how I look at it. I think there's an important thing, sort of we were talking about the tinkering of, of portfolios and asset allocation. Now, I think professional investors, you know, they do this day in, day out, and they manage and micromanage uh, exposure to different asset classes. I think for individual investors, uh, every time you make a change, there's an opportunity to be right, but there's an equal opportunity to be wrong. Um, and, and therefore, you can, you can overmanage and over-tinker. And I think it should be, you should sort of have your percentage exposures to different asset classes and then... I, I would prefer a sort of operating on the margin and, and, and sort of tweaking and cutting back uh, and bringing exposure back to within a, a small uh, a sort of window and change window of a, a range of, of, of exposure. But how would you actually go about deciding when to tinker then and, and how much to tinker? Um, so effectively, you, you sort of perhaps want a, a, a sort of a core exposure. So say, you know, Taha suggested you might have 10% in Japan or 10% in America. So you start with that as your base case. And then, you know, you don't have too much more sort of around that. So don't review your portfolios too often. I, I would say, you know, once a year, maybe six monthly, you have a look. Don't, don't, don't over, overdo it. And then, you know, you look at your exposure. And if, you, if the U.S. has gone, say, for you know, to 12%, well, that's, that's not too bad, but it goes to 14%, then you, you bring that back into line. And you may want to sort of say, well, actually, I'm happy to keep it a little bit overweight because sentiment towards the US is still positive. I'm still happy about it. And you just sort of you read the general themes. And a good, a good example, I would say, is looking at sort of how the bond market's been playing out, particularly even since the financial crisis, because people were underweight bonds thinking the value had already been achieved and, and interest rates couldn't go any lower. Uh, and they were very wrong. But yields continue to drive lower and lower up until about 2016, actually. And then things have changed. So you can sort of almost look at the big themes that drive markets as opposed to uh, getting too involved in the, the minutiae and the day-to-day detail. I mean, you were saying earlier that you think macro is really important. Is that sort of attached to that point? Do you think it's important to pay attention to that, the, the big themes that are driving markets? Uh, yeah, I think it's important to sort of understand where you are in the cycle uh, from a macro point of view. And I think, so So what I'm perhaps sort of getting at there is if you look to the US market, it's important to understand where valuations are. It's important to understand that the, the US market is later in the economic cycle, but the signals aren't suggesting a recession is imminent at the moment. So, and then corporate earnings are coming through. So looking at those perhaps bigger picture stuff. But equally, you know, the whole point of asset allocation is you don't, sort of put all your money on black and hope it'll, hope it'll come through. You are diversified. You only have X percent exposure to one market. So even if you do get your timing slightly wrong, it isn't going to have a, 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 an overly significant impact on your portfolio. 
And you were sort of mentioning some of the signals that are coming through. What is your take on the current macro position? Um, and what kind of asset classes do you think could do well in, in the current environment? We've had that, we had a wobble earlier on in the year about and concerns over sort of the, 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 the global growth and we saw a, a sell-off in tech stocks as, as people got concerned over valuations. So definitely we're seeing the, the, the sort of US market is getting mature, but earnings growth is still coming through. So there's some, there's some, some growth still there and that can support valuations. So for example, in the US, I quite like a, a fund called the US, uh, Artemis US Extended Alpha Fund. It's a, uh, an experienced team of managers run it led by uh, a gentleman called Cormac Weldon. It can go long and short. So it can effectively buy and sell the US market to make money. That gives it a sort of defensive element to, to the portfolio. And it gives you, it still gives you US exposure, but gives you ability to profit when, if and when that market turns. I think, you know, having a bit of gold exposure is quite a good idea because that gives you that sort of uh, insurance policy and, and means you don't get, the, you know, you don't have to worry about getting the timing right. You've always got the insurance policy in there. And then finally, as a third sort of idea, uh, the JPM Global Macro Opportunities Fund uh, is an absolute return fund. It looks at global macro uh, op- uh, economics. So it looks at the trends that are driving markets and the team are very good at sort of picking out and operate and, and effectively, you know, they do this professionally where they're going in and saying, right, well, you know, we're looking at the, 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 the themes that are driving markets. So, you know, some of the themes they're looking at is the Japanese economic recovery, the China in transition theme, and the, this global political divergence themes, which are sort of driving, uh, you know, influencing markets. And then they're actively managing that on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I think that's a really good way of accessing it and, and actually accessing some of those themes without you having to sort of spend every sort of minute and day of your retirement or your life looking at these things. And we were talking about the things that might do well, but which asset classes do you think might do badly given where we are in, in the cycle? So bonds are probably the first ones to suffer in, in the current phase of the cycle because interest rates are rising. The risk is for bonds is that interest rates, particularly in the, this is being led by the US, if interest rates in the US rise much quicker than is currently anticipated, then the sell-off in bonds becomes a lot faster. And we saw in April the US Treasury yields hit 3%, and that was a sort of seen as a bit of a, a marker in the sand of, of trend. It had been a long time since they'd done that. But if, if interest rates rise more quickly, or there's policy error in the US, there could be a sell-off in bonds initially, but then it could quickly tip over to equities. So equities are, valuations are fairly high. If corporate earnings turn over and we see a recession, then equity markets will become vulnerable. I think that's less likely, less of an issue currently. It's more something to sort of look out for on the horizon, but it is something to be sort of conscious of. And does that mean then that you think that people should be totally avoiding bonds if given that these risks are there? I wouldn't necessarily totally avoid bonds. I think there are ways to sort of get get it, get exposure. Strategic bonds are perhaps a, bit, a better way to do it. And there's a, a fund called 24 Dynamic Bond. They're a strategic bond fund, very flexible, very specialist bond fund. And they, they can effectively manage the universe. There are ways of getting exposure to bonds without having sensitivity to interest rates. Uh, so you can effectively go short dated or you can avoid uh, corporate risks, so avoid the high yield area, which are, are much more sensitive to corporate blowouts um, and, and uh, correct. There. You want something that's quite flexible and strategic so that they can move with changes in sentiment and changes in policy from central banks. Thanks, Adrian, for a very useful discussion on asset allocation. Investing in alternative assets such as infrastructure, renewable energy and specialist property has been growing in popularity with investors as these areas offer very attractive yields. And a new fund has launched which will invest in a combination of alternative asset stocks and investment trusts. Taha, 
Um, please tell us more. What is this fund and who will be running it? The fund is called the RM Alternative Income Fund and it's run by RM Funds. Uh, you may know this name because they run the RM Secure Direct Lending Trust, again, which is quite a popular um, alternative fixed income trust. Um, the, the managers are James Robson and uh, Pietro Nichols, and it's um, it's quite interesting in that it's going to be investing in investment trusts and also direct securities, which provide exposure to the asset class you just mentioned. And what kind of return are the managers hoping to achieve? They're looking for 7-8% annualised return over three to five years, but they're also looking for a 5% yield while they do this. So this is it's interesting and enticing and kind of ticks a lot of boxes for what investors are looking for. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds great. How different is this fund, though, from other funds investing in alternative assets? It's different in the sense that it's open-ended. So RM funds say this is the first open-ended fund on the market that provides broad exposure to the alternative asset classes that we've, that we've been talking about. And so that makes it quite interesting. And also, if, you know, for investors that aren't able to buy investment trusts, or don't like using them and just like using simple um, open-ended funds in their portfolio, this would give a, a strong alternatives exposure within that portfolio without having to buy a range of investment trusts. But what are its charges? Um, and do you think that they're good value for money? So the charges is 0.85%. And if you, we, you know, we, you, you've spoken to a couple of people about this and we, we talk about this in the magazine, there, a few people think this is a bit too expensive for a new fund. But at the same time, if it's going to achieve 7 and 8% um, a year over three to five years under 5% yield, then maybe 0.85% isn't too much. Yes, and I suppose it's also invested in underlying trust, so it needs to be able to, to buy into those as well. Absolutely. So there, there is an element of double charging that investors have to think about. You know, it's, it is... Even though it's um, a mix of equities and investment trusts, it is still essentially a fund of funds. So there is a double charging element that people need to be aware of. Okay. And what did the analysts that you know, we spoke to about this fund, what did they think about its offering? In terms of the charges, they, they think it's a little bit too high, as, as, as I just said, but you know, it could be worth it. But generally, they're, they're on the wait and see approach because while this isn't actually doing anything new because it's buying existing uh, investment trusts and, and stocks, they they aren't sure exactly how it's going to be formed, but you know the team have they have form in, in the investment trust they already run, and that that in the secured lending trust is going to be included in this fund as well. So there is there is an element of that, but there are things to uh, to think about. So it is it is alternatives in the sense that it's providing exposure to all these assets, but if it's going to be fifty percent equities and fifty percent investment trusts, it is going to be quite correlated to equity markets. So therefore, you have to really consider its diversification benefit as well. Adrian, what do you make of this fund? Yes, I think um, it is quite interesting. I think you've got to you've got to take a, a wait and see. The targets of some return are quite uh, try to, uh, quite interesting. I think that might be a tough ask, but we will wait and see. Uh, the yield is the yield target is five percent, so we need to see if they'll actually achieve that. The key thing is really you did they, they've got some expertise in this area, but they're sort of broadening it out now. So uh, you know managing that sort of sector and, and the, the types of investments in that space is, is, is quite challenging. You need you know, quite specialist expertise in that. So, you know, very much worth sort of, I would adopt a wait and see on this approach on this fund and actually see how it performs and see if it uh, sort of manages to achieve its targets. And more broadly, do you think that alternative assets offer good diversification? Because, I mean, Taha was saying that um, this fund's going to have a bit in, in investment trust, but also in the stocks. So how, you know, how much diversification do alternative assets offer? I mean, uh, alternative is a very broad church. Um, uh, it, a, lot of, a lot of the stuff that will be in this uh, alternative assets will be listed equities, ultimately. It's the nature of what they do that makes them alternative. So in the short term, you have a potential... A correlation with equities, but in the medium and longer term, 
they they can be differentiated because they they the way that they perhaps operate and the sort of niche areas that they operate in effectively have create different characteristics. A lot of it's infrastructure where they've got long long leasing and pretty secure tenancies and, and, and inflation-linked incomes, which effectively give them that differentiation. So we, we've done analysis on this uh, over the past, and, and there is a, a diversification benefit. They do tend to be uh, very uncorrelated to uh, equities and bonds, which was the sort of traditional go-to places for investors. So I think there is a diversification benefit there. They are particularly appealing to income seekers for that because they have that inflation-linked uh, uh, income with them and, and it's another source of income, if you like. And But what would you say then are the risks of investing in alternative assets? So I think... If you look at this sort of the wider market, a lot of this stuff is is infrastructure. They can be an asset lending. Um, So you can have things like, it can be a very broad thing. It can be things from catastrophe reassurance, infrastructure projects, airplane leasing, all sorts of types of things. So they're quite niche areas. Um, If you bought these investments directly, they could be very small, very illiquid, and potentially individually very risky. Uh, You also need the, the, so you've got to be aware of that. If you're investing in this, you'd have to, you want that sort of broad fund approach because that will help spread the risks. It hasn't really been through a sort of economic cycle either. So whilst the diversification benefits are there, we haven't seen it go through a, a sort of recessionary cycle to see how it fully performs. I would expect it to be fairly defensive in that in that nature. Um, you know, catastrophe reassurance, for example, has very little to do with economic cycle. It's more to do with weather patterns. Uh, so, so therefore, you wouldn't expect it to be particularly sensitive to a recession. But you know, you need to see how it behaves in a cycle, um, and particularly because a lot of it will be equity linked. How they actually behave in a cycle. So I think there will be some, you know, areas that you'll see that there will be periods potentially of correlation or closer correlation with equities and bonds. But overall, I think over the medium longer term, that will come out in the wash. Do you think then that investors should be adding more to alternative assets, given the potential diversification benefits and you know, as we're talking about the problems of bonds? So do you think people should be adding more to alternative assets? Absolutely. I think um, if you look at sort of where we've, we've talked about sort of valuations and equity markets being fairly high with, with the bond market, with the yields having sort of bottomed out in 2016, but still fairly low and the risk that interest rates rise, then having another asset class and diversification into other, other assets and real assets is quite an interesting area. Then I think this is, this is certainly one thing that people should, should consider, um, particularly income seekers looking to sort of get a high, lower risk income that has some inflation protection. So it, 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 it will, will appeal to particularly to UK investors over recent years. And how would you get exposure then? Three funds in this space at the moment that operate. There's the FP Real, Russell Real Assets, uh, Architects themselves do a diversified real assets fund, and the newly launched Vita, VT RM Alternative Income Fund. I think you just you, you need to look under the bonnet at each of these because each one will do things differently. They will look at sort of alternative income and real assets differently. Um, so you need to sort of look at each one and say, well, what, which one do I think suits my needs? Um, and which one do I like the look of? Give me the diversification and the risk that I want. So you really do have to, I think, look under the bonnet and watch each one's investing in. All right. Well, thanks very much, Adrian. Some really great, interesting points there. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more on VTRM Alternative Income, finding value opportunities in the UK and how to actively manage your asset allocation on the website and in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.